Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He irirangi o Hi, Paul here. No surprises, this series contains strong language, descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents. Coming up, the venison industry is booming, but hunters are in danger of killing the golden goose. We were having a really hard job making pay. In fact, we weren't making it pay. I can remember vividly that opening morning. It was like a war zone. It was just like there was no respect. Just machine after machine after machine. A lot of the time you didn't want to think about it because it was such an amazing era. You weren't wanting it to end. But there are major changes coming that will reset the industry for the third time. And as hunters chase even bigger profits, the dangers are also growing. They have jumped on stags and tied them up. Still got the shit beaten out of you. I don't know how many times more I left hand it was. Dislocate the thumb, just pop clean out of the joint. And you'd have to put the old thumb between your legs and get back into the spot and carry on tie the deer up. I can remember one day that we were chasing a deer to catch it, dived in between these trees and got the deer, tied it up, hooked it on underneath, and then I turned to the shooter and I said, how do I get out of here? I'm Paul Roy. This is Deer Wars. Episode 7, Deer Wars. As the chopper flies, Fiordland National Park is about 30 minutes from where we are now. A beautiful place, but also the site of one of the hottest battles in the Deer Wars. Now remember, in 1967, businessman Tim Wallace secured an exclusive deal for his company, Alpine Helicopters, to shoot in Fiordland National Park, or 1.2 million hectares of it. For three years, his steamer, the Ranganui, has been parked up in the fjord with two helicopters on the go every day. They've hauled out tens of thousands of animals. One day produced 185 carcasses. But Tim, having sole access to the park, enrages rival helicopter companies and erupts into the so-called deer wars, which goes well beyond the odd fisticuffs at the pub. Sounds like, like real wild west sort of times. It really was. It really was. We talked about the helicopter wars. That's John von Tunzelman. You'll remember him from an earlier episode as a field officer in the ground culling days and later as a dock ranger based in Teano. The helicopter hangar down at Wales Strip was set alight one night. Thompson Brothers had a helicopter sitting up at Mavora Lakes, they parked up there and rather than fly home in, in the dark and you know, go back the next morning to go hunting and found bullet holes in it when they got there the next day. Probably private hunters or something. Helicopters sabotage, you know, terrible stuff. 
terribly dangerous stuff. People would be very reluctant to leave helicopters unsupervised. It's a miracle that no one is seriously hurt or a chopper destroyed during this period. In the end, civil aviation and even the New Zealand Air Force try to intervene. They bring down two Iroquois helicopters to enforce the law and track down poachers, but all to no avail. Neil Scott, a civil aviation enforcement officer at the time. Uh, yeah, I had a uh, white jet ranger which the uh, civil aviation owned and I had it one week out of uh, every month. So I'd try and plan my uh, uh, excursions down the South Island during that week and pay people a visit. And because uh, uh, on my cross countries I'd be calling to explain to other aircraft where I was getting my position reports and I, uh, some of these boys would uh, uh, hear them and they'd switch to another frequency and just... Uh, call all their mates and say, the grey ghost is on the way. <laughs> and they never referred to it as a CIA jet ranger. It was always the grey ghost. One of those making themselves scarce at the approach of the grey ghost is Dick Deeker, who is by now a very experienced helicopter pilot flying out of Teano. Civil Aviation got themselves a jet ranger, helicopter. Anyway, he was heading south to catch all these guys flying around at night that they're not meant to be doing, and spotlighting and carrying on. He'd take off from Christchurch, but before he got past Rolleston, we all knew he was heading south and what he was up to. Tim Wallace would phone up and say, well, I've just been told civil aviation are heading down here looking for you guys, working on private licenses and flying at night. This guy, he came down any floor around down there and he couldn't find anybody anywhere. So we'd just disappear for about three days. So I would go down to Lake Hiroko and I stayed in a camp down there, still shot all the deer and just worked as normal. But we never came near Tiana because he was wanting to catch us down the wire on that coming up. And uh, I remember seeing him some years later and he said, oh, I went down there looking around for you guys. We're going to have to stop all this poaching and working late at night. But none of you were out anywhere. I said, no, no, that'd be right. They gave up on that idea in the finish. And at one stage they had the Air Force down here looking around, but they all went out the wrong time of the day. I guess by the time they did all the paperwork, everybody had already come home. Forty-plus years on from these events, Neil Scott doesn't harbour any resentment. Nor do the pilots, who universally said to me he was a great guy, just in the wrong job. Probably fair to say that most of the stuff they told you would be uh, what was going on at the time. We knew that, but they had to look after themselves. They had bills to pay. At the end of the day, they were only in it for one thing. Well, two, probably. They all enjoyed it. It was a real fun game, and they got a lot of money out of it. So uh, it was win-win as long as they got away with it. Getting away with it is the name of the game. And as long as they've been deer, they've been poachers. And have really met a pilot or shooter anywhere in New Zealand who can say, hand on heart, they've never poached. And with those boys in there, Tim Wallace and his crews tying up the rest thing, you never poached at all, did you, Charlie? Tried not to. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> no, but everybody used to poach in those days, and it was just oh, yeah, that sort of dumb thing. And the fine, like three hundred dollar fine, if you got caught a day in court, it wasn't massive. But now they take you can take your aircraft and all the stuff, you know, take everything that's involved. But down the road in Fiordland. 
poaching is almost inevitable. Tim Wallace might have tied up exclusive access to the National Park, but the flip side of that is angry rivals want a piece of the action. Tim Wallace, Alpine helicopters were operating in Bjorda National Park relatively early in the piece. In those days, it was just them. That's Hunter Shaw, who runs a good business as a ground hunter in the home valley outside Teahanau. When the deer wars erupt, Hunter has a ringside seat. So it took quite a while, but there was pressure over the years. Eventually, it got right to governmental level. There were big meetings and there was a lot of pressure brought to bear by these other operators that wanted to get in to have a slice of the pie as it were in the Fjordland National Park, which was fair enough. Eventually they did open the park up to other operators and that then was the death knell for people like myself, for brown hunters. first morning that they opened the park up to the private operators, it was just like there was no respect then. Just machine after machine after machine came in. I can remember vividly that opening morning. It was like a war zone. I barely got the sleep out of my eyes, leaving the hut walking down the track and then machine comes in and boom, boom, boom and another one. They could just do the whole block like in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Pretty gut-wrenching feeling, really. I guess that was reality. That's what happened. And, of course, it became um, sillier and sillier as the period rolled on. I mean, the choppers, one would be in and another one would be in right behind it. They'd be getting there earlier and earlier, like at non-productive times of the day, in order to try to be there first, you know, because that was the whole mentality of it at that stage. Hunter's right. The pressure really is on the deer. By 1973, it's estimated there are 50 helicopters operating in the South Island alone. The deer are not only wary, they're being shot out. So the original goal of eradicating the deer, that internal affair started way back in the 30s, is now finally within reach. But caught up in the excitement of the game, the hunters just can't see that they're killing the golden goose. It was quite interesting because I never ever thought I'd get to 30 years old. And then I didn't think I'd get to 40 years old. And then when you get to 40 years old, you want to get to 50 year old. That's Doug Maxwell, a very personable and experienced pilot. I catch up with him at his home outside Alexandra in central Otago in 2008. He joins Tim Wallace's outfit in 1973 towards the tail end of the venison recovery. Doug remembers the time well. We were having a really hard job making it pay. In fact, we weren't making it pay. We were lucky to go out for a sortie in, in the 500 and get five or six deer which in those days wouldn't pay. And it would be for two and a half, three hours. I think at that stage we were probably charging the machine out at, say, $500 an hour, and our return with two deer would have been probably $300 per hour. The economics weren't stacking up. Things were getting quite desperate. 
lot of the time you didn't want to think about it because it was such an amazing era, you weren't wanting it to end. But the owners of chopper businesses all over the country are looking at the bottom line. And as usual, Tim Wallace has got the jump on them. Here's Dick Deeker again. Tim Wallace knew that deer farming was going to be a thing of the future. Was already getting us while we were shooting deer to capture fawns. If you can catch the fawns, I want them caught, you know, and I'll pay as well for them. Fawns weren't too hard to catch, really. You just wore them down a bit, and I jumped out on them, and we tied them up, and you'd put a sock over their head to cover their eyes up so they didn't get stressed out, put them in the back seat, and just go away and shoot some more and come back with three or four fawns some mornings. In fact, I remember tramping in Nelson Lakes National Park in the early 70s and spooking a hind and finding her fawn just off the track, hidden in the undergrowth. We carried it out and sold it for $80, which was a lot for an 18-year-old at the time. But catching fawns is never going to build a new industry, so Kiwi shooters, adaptable as ever, turned to a new practice known as bulldogging. Harvey can tell us a bit about this one. You stood out on the skip and you run the animal to got a wee bit tired, not over tired, and then try and get it running uphill or across a swamp. As soon as it got to below 20 mile an hour, you'd jump on a tent rig I had, I just hit it with my chest. So you'd knock it off its feet, and then first to the feet one. <laughs> I've seen footage of deer being bulldogged, with men leaping out over steep tussock slopes or onto riverbeds or boulders and it looks as mad and as dangerous as it sounds. It had to have a thick skull and no brains and a lot of hope. That's Jeff Carter. You'll remember him from the last episode and some of his early adventures learning to shoot and recover deer from a helicopter. When you first went in there, you had black eyes and bleeding noses, thinking this is the life. But I did bulldog a hell of a lot of deer. And what was the sort of most that you ever bulldogged in a week, Jeff? I got 101 week down at Waikai, working with Jim Kane and uh, Fred Andrews. I got 67 of those in two days. Next day I couldn't even walk. You know, they reckon rugby's tough. You want to try that game? That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of deer, and you're in the snow all day. You're always wet and you're always cold. There wouldn't be enough Voltaren in the country for me to do it now, I tell you. Christ. You can remember this was 30 years ago, I was a bit stupider then. Wee bit. So you bulldogged 67 in two days? Yeah, we targeted mainly hinds. We did jump on stags, I have jumped on stags and tied them up. Still got the shit beaten out of you. Either you try and get around the neck, often you'll land on them and you slide back down and you grab the back legs. And uh, they didn't really like that much. In fact, they got really pissed off about it. You got a terrible beating out of it. But then you don't know what's worse, the beating or having to get back in the helicopter and do it again with the pilot yelling and screaming at you. When we first started bulldogging and that, well, I was only 17 and only eight and a half stone. That's Mark Cust. You heard from him in a previous episode, surviving a terrible helicopter accident that killed one of his mates. He's still doing dangerous stuff in a chopper. I remember one instance, we'd got onto this yelling hind. She was running out of quite a gradual sort of a knob. I jumped on it and it was a reasonably steepish sort of a face and it swung round on me and we started going down the hill. At the end days we had nylon suits on. 
we sort of both took off and started scooting down the hill. I can remember seeing when before I'd even jumped on it, there was a bit of a bluff, which was maybe 200 feet high. And as we got closer to where we had picked up speed, I let the deer go just to see it go flying out into mid-air. I just went straight over the bluff, went down the face of it and tore all the skin off my face and off my fingers, hanging on to the rocks. Ended up on this little ledge, hard up against the face. And I got my way around, got a hold of the tussock, pulled myself back on and Johnny Mac came in and picked me up. He said, I was on my way home. You were dead, I thought you were dead. He picked me up and then we flew round over the top and at the bottom it was just a pile of jagged rocks. The old deer's laying in amongst it and of course was just munted. So we just flew away, but carried on working. Yep, didn't go home and have a cup of tea or anything, it was back to work. Do you suffer any injuries from bulldogging? I mean, not really. The only injuries I suffered was getting kicked. I broke a few teeth, landing in amongst the rocks, got knocked out, but that was pretty much it from the bulldogging. For an ordinary person, that's quite a lot of <laughs> But bulldogging's never going to be enough, and it's not long before people come up with a whole range of methods for catching adult deer, particularly breeding hinds. One technique is using drugs. Never been done before, so no one knew anything about it. Totally different ball game, you know, A, you had to get a dart gun, because you weren't shooting near with a bullet, which is quite different than firing a dart. Hunter Shula again. Once he decides to get in on the action, he makes his own gun, using a cut-down .22 rifle barrel. So that was one thing, getting it built. Then buying the darts, and I had just plastic darts at the beginning. But you know, it was all trial and error. Knew nothing about it. Not many people did. He might not know what he's doing with drugs, but like everyone else, he has a crack at it. I remember going out and seeing a deer or two or three of them. Bang, first deer. It ran off, there was on a clearing, and I waited because that was the plan. Apparently, wait five or ten minutes, don't disturb it, it'll go into the bush and not disturb too far and get sleepy, lie down. We go and tie a rope around it and carry it out. It was all pretty easy, you know, in theory. So I waited 10 minutes or so. As soon as we got into the bush after a few metres, I saw just one little speck of blood. We followed that, and it was only in, you know, 50 or 100 metres. It was quite heavy crown feed in this area, and there the deer was sort of underneath. And I <laughs> wake up, and it was stone dead. <laughs> it was quite traumatic, really. See, that first deer, pretty excited. The drug had worked. I got it, I was right beside it, but it was dead. But the chopper boys, including Mark, are already well onto it, and with similar mixed results. When we first got a dart pistol, just with a single dart, you darted your deer in the tussock, kept it out in the tussock, waited till it got groggy, and then I'd jump on it, and they were pretty much asleep on their feet, so they were a lot easier to pull over and tie up. And did you have to administer in the early days um, an antidote? Yes, we had to give them lethadrone brought them round. How quickly did you have to get the antidote in them? Well, if you didn't give them the antidote, the drug that we were using and that would actually kill them. In some cases, the deer would drown in their own vomit. 
So, yeah, there was drawbacks with using the drug. You lost the odd one, but the, out of the ones that you got, keeping them alive after you got them home was a big thing. You had to prop them up and, you know, we used hay bales so that they didn't get their heads down. The rate of them dying, you might lose half sometimes. Yeah, it was quite hard on them. As Mark says, it was pretty tough on the deer, who stress easily at the best of times. Being harried by machines, jumped on and drugged, pushed them to the point of exhaustion. This series is about the people who hunted, and if you'll excuse the language, the rip-shit and bust culture they built over generations. But as much as possible, the hunters looked after the animals. After all, a live deer was big bucks. Using a dark room to calm them down after capture off the hill and releasing them into big paddocks to settle down. Often, there would be a vet to check them out. Many of the pilots and shooters I've met genuinely love deer, grateful not just for the living they provided, but proud of their legacy in today's flourishing deer farms. But the early years of live capture were, without a doubt, a bit brutal. The darts and drugs get more sophisticated. They start using transmitters to track the deer, but it's still pretty hit and miss. Sometimes the darts miss or fall out or even hit a branch or twig. And so in the end, it all takes too long. And as we know, time is money with choppers. So they look at other methods, including the risky use of an electric gun to immobilise the deer. Tim said, well, what should we go for? I said, I'd like to see a transmitter in the dart. He said, well, I've got this other idea, and that was to capture them with electric shock. A gun that fired two darts with wires attached. So what we used to do is fly in, there was an animal running up the hill, and the big thing with using the electric guns was that you had to be so close and the shooter would shoot maybe that far from the back of the deer. So Doug is indicating a distance of just under 50 centimetres. That's how far the shooter is from a running deer. Bang. When you fired the darts at the animal, two little darts came out with a very fine stainless steel wire and the deer would go paralysed, just stiff. The shooter would jump out, tie the legs together. When you darted it, you had to stop within that 30 metres. So sometimes if you're running along doing, say, 25 miles an hour, and he fired the dart, that deer, if it stopped straight away, you had to really stop quick. And there was quite a few guys hitting their tail because they'd try and stop so quick that they'd hit their tail and bury it in the ground. So it was a very dangerous occupation, and it was quite scary. I remember taking a team from down south and I took them over to a property just behind our place and Alex here to show them how to use the electrics. Jimmy was standing on the skid and we were chasing this deer. And we came in real close and it leapt off the hill. And here's this blasted stag coming straight at us. Jimmy said he shot a defence. <laughs> And the stag went into a spasm, stretched out solid, hit the helicopter, 
draped between the skid and the uh, body of the machine. The antlers came through the bottom window, smashed that. Jimmy's hanging on with dear life. We were in a 500 luckily and I was able to hold the machine without being tipped over. The deer slid off the edge of the skid, fell down the hill a bit and Jimmy got out and tied it up. He wasn't very impressed with the <laughs> electrics. So the electric gun isn't going to be the answer. But there is something that will make live capture a real goer. There are competing claims as to who first invented the handheld neck gun. I've talked to several people who were working on it around the same time, but one of the first was undoubtedly Ivan Wilson. At 74, he's small, tough and wiry. He's a top ex-government colour who rode all the peaks and troughs of the business and is still in the game. You're only a fairly little fellow, really. If you don't mind me saying. <laughs> so how did you get on? Did you, you bulldogged yourself, didn't you? Yeah, I bulldogged. How, yeah. how did you get on doing it? <laughs> Pretty <even>. roughly. <laughs> it was just a technique that you had to develop. And, of course, your pilot was your main option, keep you safe. You'd stalk them with the helicopter and get them into a place where you could come in quickly. You wouldn't have to leap more than a few feet and land on the deer, hopefully. <laughs> It was quite thrilling, really. And of course, there are the occasional mishaps. I didn't try to bulldog the deer. It just happened that I fell out of the helicopter. Luckily, I fell on the deer. He said, you don't want to be doing that, Ivan. We can't do them things, jumping out of helicopters like that. I said, jump! <laughs> no, I didn't jump, pal. I fell out. <laughs> you can kind of understand why Ivan was so keen to come up with something that was a bit less punishing on the body. I walked in to meet him in his private hut in the inland Kaikouras, prime country for deer, chamois and goats. For a man who had spent 45 years hunting deer, he has carved himself out the perfect bolt hole, a magical place. His hut had running water, water-driven power to keep the beer cold and the meat fresh. From the veranda, I could see deer grazing on the slopes opposite the hut with my naked eye. As I talked to Ivan about the net gun he helped build so many years ago. The original net gun fired a projectile which carried a net. Working with the gun and cutting it down. Who did all that sort of stuff? We did it all. And we did all our own welding and whatever. <laughs> with the two-barrel gun, we welded it up, glued it to a shotgun for a starter, and we had trouble with compression to send the shotgun off, so we changed it over to the old 303. First time we ever shot a net gun, we had a string on the trigger and we set the string from the trigger and we disappeared round into the shed and loaded her up and sat her there, you know, and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened, you see. We went around and found the shotgun, of course. The second one didn't go off either, you know. So I'll throw another shell in it, you know. And the whole lot went off with a bang, you know. And all I can remember was uh, peering around the side of the shed and seeing our net disappearing over into the Anangahua River about 250 yards away. You know, and I thought, wow, 
isn't this going to be something, you know, if we could just control it. Word soon spreads of this gun, aptly named the Gotcha Gun, and unsurprisingly, Tim Wallace is quick off the mark to make use of them. Here's Doug Maxwell. It's myself, Tim, and Noel Boyd. We went over and saw Ivan Wilson, and they had this thing called the Gotcha Gun. Based on a 303 action, had two barrels, a small box underneath it held a net, and he was saying that they were using it and they were catching deer. So Ivan jumped in the front and we went away and see if we could catch a deer. Found a deer and he fired a net and we caught it, put it in the back, brought it home. Got back and Tim said, what do you think? And I said, it's got to be the answer. You've either got a deer or you haven't got a deer. There's no halfway. So Tim bought some of those gotcha guns off Ivan and uh, we started. Ivan sells 50 or more of these guns to crews around the country. But there's no magic fix, as the first shooters, like Jeff Carter, find out. They actually had the right idea, but they said to us at the time that deer come down the hill, we just fired the net straight into the ground and sort of hung up like a curtain. Yeah, right. That tap, you know, how many shots you got to do to get a deer like that? Unless you got it dead right. And ideally on a nice flat place, you get the net over it. And ideally, if you're netting a deer, there should be no scrub around. And nothing pisses you off more than the net's hanging up over a scrub. He got it beautifully, but it didn't go over the deer, and the deer just comes out underneath. And then he had to go and tie it up with about two and a half fingers missing, because the triggers used to come back and just used to rip all your fingers off here, and oh, it was a cow of a bloody thing. Well, I was, I was meat hunting at the time, and uh, this was in the mid-70s, and um, uh, on horseback and on the ground. And then, of course, they had been, the, the, the helicopter sort of started to, to operate and we got, had a bit of an interest with it. That's the voice of Jim Quirk, who hunted the Uruwira Ranges from the 1970s on. Straightforward and likeable, I talked to Jim at his farm outside Taupo, accompanied by dogs in the background. We were sick of this carrying bloody deer for miles and miles and miles and hours and hours and hours. This helicopter business sounds like... Uh, a bloody good way to carry deer, so it was a natural progression of events. Like anyone in the industry at the time, Jim had his fair share of near misses and accidents along the way. Just part of the job. We were sitting on the ground this time, and uh, bloody, I, I closed the bolt to chamber the round properly and then pulled the, the, the bolt back open again, and just to make sure that it's seated, because the cartridge used to swell. And, uh, and the bloody thing went off and it blew the net through the front of them 500. <laughs> because it was a cloud of bloody dust when it went off. And... <laughs> Bit of fun. Uh, I think he was um, still there, sitting here with his ears ringing. Actually, the one weight went through the toe of my boot, but I never got my toe. <laughs> the two-barrel gotcha gun kicks like a mule, and sometimes gouges bits of flesh out of the trigger hand. The sheer recall of it would take all the skin off your knuckles. Dave Bass, an old hand, and as tough as they come. I don't know how many times my left hand it was, dislocate the thumb, just pop clean out of the joint, and you'd have to put the old thumb between your legs, get back into the spot and carry on tying the deer up. But that was all part of it. Quite quickly, the net guns evolved to three barrels, then four barrels. Eventually, they had two mounted guns on the skid that the pilot could fire remotely. 
but it was still a very dangerous business, with the shooter having to avoid firing the net and its heavy weights into either the helicopter blades or the skids. And once again, crews are having to learn on the job, and the accident rate rockets up. 38 helicopters crash in 1977, and there are many more near misses. Just listen to pilot Bruce Kingham. Pip and I were chasing a deer we'd netted down a, a steep tussock hill, and just as I thought, I got to watch those weights because they're flicking over the back of a tussock, and the deer wasn't quite tangled up properly. One got flicked off and flicked up into the blades. It picked the net up and it threw it across the front of the helicopter with the direction of the blade, hung the stag on the toes of both skids in the net at 4,000 feet above the gully and the wire wrapper. Had the weight hit fractionally different in the blade, had it wrapped the stag around a different way around the front, had it tangled up in the blades. We had a long way to get down the hill before we'd have stopped. You'll realise by now that Bruce saying it would have been a long way down before they stopped pretty much means they would have been killed. We got away with it. Struggled down the hill and put it on the ground. It's pure luck. Pure luck, you know. And if it's difficult for the shooters, it's equally so for the pilots, flying fast in tight country with little room for error. Shooting is basically very easy compared to live capture. Doug Maxwell. Because live capture, you're having to get in really close, you know, 10, 15 feet from the animal, and everything's moving fast. The skill level had to ramp up a lot. The terrain that we were capturing on changed. When we first started, we only took easy ones, and then we were getting harder to get, and the price went up. You'd push it a bit harder and a bit harder, and some of the guys were just amazing where they used to catch them. I can remember one day that we were chasing a deer to catch it and I dived in between these trees and got the deer, tied it up, hooked it on underneath and then I turned to the shooter and I said, how do I get out of here? And we had trees above us and trees behind us and what we had to do is actually go back exactly the way we came in. When you're flying in those sort of conditions, you're part of the machine, you know exactly where it can go, but once everything settles down, all of a sudden you think, oh, how did I get in here? And I can remember vividly one day that we hooked the steer on and we had to back down the chute underneath the trees. Trees were right over the top and then we had to back right down and then go up, which it was quite scary. I wouldn't have got out of there without my shooter standing on the skid and telling me where to go. We just worked as a team. Their life was in your hands and your life was in their hands. And with something like that, Doug, when you get in a situation and you know it's dangerous and you're both relying on each other, do you remain very calm or can you feel a high anxiety level? How do you respond in that situation like that? You've got to be calm. And you've got to always appear calm as well for the other people. You were, you were part of the machine. The machine was part of you. you. Just sort of went and did it. And it was an amazing feeling. It really was. But you were quite conscious you were doing that, a dangerous job. Oh, yes. Well, you'd have to be a fool not to be, really. But it was a thing that you built up into, and it's hard to explain, but you did live off adrenaline. We were probably junkies. You become so proficient at what you're doing, you became part of the machine. Your shooter was part of you as well. 
and everything flowed and you were good. You were really good. And it's amazing. And a lot of guys couldn't do it, they crashed. And there was a lot of guys killed. You had to know where your limit was. You could get quite close to your limit, but you couldn't go over it. Driving all of this, of course, money. And it's the so-called Queen Street farmers, lawyers, doctors and investors looking for a tax break who push prices to record highs. In the very early stages, there wasn't that many buyers, no. But uh, later on, there were just queues of them. They were lined up at the hangar. In fact, they used to come into the hangar with the checkbooks. Would you, listen, I'll write the check out now. Everyone likes the price rise, and that's what happened with the deer. Went from $70 up to 3000 In some cases, up to five. I believe. It depends where you were, what sort of deer it was. It was very good money, especially if you went and got half a dozen for a day. Sometimes you get ten. You can make 10000 a week quite easy in those days. Not quite easy, but you could make it. I remember going up the East Branch of the Eagle, just up here, and there's four yearling. And I netted them. They're in the snow. I netted the whole four, and they were sold for $12,000. Thereabouts, just on 12000 On my take of that would be 1200 A couple of three hours' work. Well, you'd have to work probably a whole month way back in those days. I invested the money wisely on beer and woman. The rest of it I just wasted. Because that's just massive money. Did you take more risks? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Definitely, you would roar in tight places and slips and holes and try and get a net over them. Just on the wing and a prayer, you just go, and then you hope that you're going to net it too, because the pressure's on you to perform. You're only as good as your last shot. You never do it now, of course. But, yeah, that was an incentive there to push the bloody boundaries a little wee bit. Quite a little wee bit. In the next episode... People used to say, oh, it must have been really glamorous. And I said, no, it was bloody hard work. Poaching reaches a new level. Used to wake up in the morning and open your arms up wide and whatever was out in front of you was all yours. And that's how you looked at it. And so do the accidents. Out of the corner of my eye, a guy left a rifle. So I swung the machine round, started heading away, and next one out there is boom, fuck. They took a very dim view of it. They couldn't see any funny side to it at all. My wife took a bit of a dumb view of it too when they knocked on the door. And you got to go to a funeral every three weeks. And that's about what it boiled down to. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.